Uh, so good afternoon. Um, uh, welcome everyone to uh, North Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds and welcome to those who are watching remotely. Uh, I'd like to introduce a uh, friend and a colleague of mine, Paul Reed. Uh, Dr. Reed is a professor of radiation oncology and associate professor of otolaryngology and head and neck surgery at the University of Virginia. Uh, Dr. Reed completed his bachelor's of chemistry at UVA 1986, MD at UVA 1990, radiation oncology residency UVA 1995, and a PhD at UVA in the year 2000. He is not looking for a job at Dartmouth currently. <laughs> uh, his current research uh, is, is focused on predictive biomarkers for head and neck cancer and uh, germane to today's presentation, improving the workflow and coordination of care uh, for cancer patients receiving palliative therapies. Uh, as many of us know, cancer is the number two cause of death in this country. 589,000 are predicted to die of cancer in 2015. And as oncologists, I believe um, it is incumbent upon us to not only be aware of end-of-life issues uh, for the patients we care for, uh, but it's also important to understand these as we try to improve population health. Um, as you may know, cancer is expensive. The last year of life is a very, very expensive uh, source of cost for cancer care, uh, both as an absolute number as well as, as a percentage. Um, and in 2012, UVA received a $2.5 million grant from CMMI uh, for studies focused at proactive palliative care uh, and radiation care for palliative uh, patients. Um, implicit in, in this grant is the understanding of value uh, in the comprehensive uh, patient-centered care approach. And this does not mean increased value of just radiation therapy or just increased value of chemotherapy, but really value in the sense of improving quality of life and experience of care for all patients while drastically decreasing the cost of care. Um, this is data from the Dartmouth Atlas, just looking at DHMC as far as hospital days per cancer patient in the last month of life, as well as ICU days per cancer patient in the last month of life in 2012. And as compared to many of our colleagues in the northern New England area, uh, we are uh, a little bit on the higher side in both these metrics. Uh, when we look at percent of cancer patients enrolled in hospice and percent of cancer patients dying in the hospital, again, in 2012, at least, Dartmouth is not uh, among the more favorable uh, endpoints uh, in, in this cohort. Uh, so with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Reed to let him discuss about how UVA is, is taking steps to, to approach this group of patients. He does not have any financial interests. He does not intend to discuss any off-label or investigational use of products or devices, and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Welcome, Dr. Reed. Thank you. Thank you very much. So it's, it's an honor to be here. Um, I haven't been in uh, this neck of the woods, so they say, in quite some time. It's a beautiful place to be. It's actually... Um, um, shares many similarities to uh, Charlottesville, uh, both small college towns um, nestled in rural environments. I kind of stumbled into this palliative care uh, work. I was interested in palliative radiation, and a, a grant opportunity came up that was much bigger than, than, than what I was working on, but was lucky enough to kind of find some collaborators. And, and what I wanted to do today is um, just briefly kind of go over the rationale of why we um, implemented the types of programs we did uh, and how we did them, 
uh, in the hopes that um, they, they, they may uh, strike a tone uh, here, uh, perhaps similar programs. I think a lot of healthcare reform, if you want to call it that, I, I like to think of it more as healthcare evolution. Um, I don't know that we're really doing anything wrong necessarily. It's just things get very complicated, and sometimes um, we need to reappraise how we how we approach problems. And this is a way that we approach problems in our environment. And 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 it may be that um, it's a it's an approach that could work here. Or some parts of it could work here. This is a specific disclosure from CMMI that they basically want us to say that we did the work. That this 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 work is is um, is performed by us and conducted by us. They actually have a group called NORC, and that doesn't stand for anything. That's not an acronym. It comes out of the University of Chicago, and they are validating all the financial metrics and so forth for this. And that hasn't been provided to us yet. But this was all work done at UVA uh, under this grant. So like I said before, this is the Emily Couric Cancer Center in Charlottesville. I, I think we could almost be sister hospitals. Um, we're both um, designated uh, clinical cancer centers. Um, I think we have somewhere around 3,000, 3,500 um, uh, new cases annually at both places. I think very similar in many ways. Um, um, and, and this is just a, a graph looking at the um, density of patients. And you can see that Europe just about as far north of the Boston-Washington corridor as, as we are south of it. So we're about 100, 120 miles south of D.C. Uh, we service a very large rural um, population. We're designated as a rural cancer center. I suspect you are as well. Um, and um, so there's unique issues with having to deal with very complex cancer patients, multidisciplinary care requirements for patients who live uh, 50 to 200 miles. Some of our patients, Southwest Virginia goes on and on and on forever, and those patients who don't have insurance come to the more state hospital, they come to us. And so it's, it's really on us to make sure that we do our best to, to coordinate their care when they're there. So CMS had, um, I don't know, they had two rounds of this uh, innovation challenge. The first one um, came in with uh, very quickly with a lot of kind of fanfare. Um, and the second one, they never really, and I was glad I applied for the first one because it, it was a very tight time frame. You had to have a letter of intent in by right before Thanksgiving and then the actual grant, which was a pretty sizable, kind of like a program project grant, was due in the end of January. Um, and um, then they were supposed to have a round two, which they never did have. So I don't know where this uh, innovation center is going with respect to funding. They, they did give out several uh, grants that were sizable. Um, and whether this is going to continue, uh, we'll, we'll see. They did have a second round, but I think it was much smaller, uh, and, the, and, and the grants were smaller, and less less, less people were funded. The um, the goals of this uh, proposal, for this request for proposals, was better health, better health care, and lower health care costs. And, and achieving one or two of these is challenging, but actually trying for, trying to figure out ways that you can do all three um, um, uh, is is not easy and these these programs had to be basically built they had to be piloted they had to be clinically implemented 
and then you had to accrue large numbers of patients, and then you had to collect outcomes data. And all of that had to happen um, basic in a three-year interval of time. So this was not something where you kind of think about what you're going to do. You basically had to have a plan. We had to speak to CMS every two weeks on the phone with the program officer, wanting to know what our progress were, what the issues were. This was really kind of a, a full-court press of, of, of building clinical programs and, and, uh, and then clinically implementing them, seeing what happens. So, so, so part of the impetus for this, um, this RFP, I think, is related uh, to a couple of things. One is the aging of the U.S. population. I'm sure lots of you have seen these types of, of graphs before, but we're right in the beginning stages of what's going to be for the next probably 15, 20 years of a very rapid increase of senior citizens and uh, uh, people who are going to be on Medicare. Um, and so the government has, has some interest in curbing uh, health care costs um, and, and keeping them from continuously escalating. If you look at health care costs uh, of the United States uh, compared to other countries, somewhere around 1980 we started to, to, to kind of diverge from other Western developed countries with respect of how much we'll spend with respect to GDP on health care. And so, so it's somewhere around 18% or so uh, in the United States right now. So it's a huge amount of money if you think about GDP of this country being $18 trillion. Uh, basically, a fifth of that um, is going uh, to health care. Um, so I think these two, two, these two issues, the increasing amount of costs for health care as well as the aging population, drove CMS to want to find unique solutions. Um, one thing I, I will say to their credit of this innovation center, um, I think physicians are probably the best poised physicians and nurses, really the whole healthcare teams, but to self-identify waste in our own respective fest, uh, uh, areas uh, and to try and, and do cost containment rather than them coming along and just saying we're cutting everybody 3% a year or whatever the other kind of option is. So, so, so we had scratched, kind of scratched my head. I put in a letter of intent to, I was already working on a program to make palliative radiation for people uh, mainly with bone metastases easier so that patients wouldn't have to come more time. So I put in a letter of intent to, to for a proposal for that, and then read, read the proposal and, uh, more, more, in more depth uh, several times and realized the grant had to be a lot bigger. It had to include multidisciplinary care. It had to, improve, it had to include shared data uh, generation and, and, and da data management of patients. So, so, I, so I started to scratch my head and say, well, I, I, I want to still kind of stick with this uh, letter of intent. I want to put an application in and sought some colleagues who, who could help me, uh, help us as a team put this in. So it's really this is a team. So, so, so the real question then became, you know, where is the low-hanging fruit in uh, cancer care? You know, where can you reduce costs and potentially improve quality of life and, and improve the whole healthcare system. Um, and if you, if you think about um, end-of-life uh, management, um, inpatient costs in particular have skyrocketed uh, over the past several years to decade and a half. Um, and we thought that that would probably be our big cost 
center savings. We thought about 85 to 90 percent of the costs of this set of proposals would be from reduced inpatient costs in the last few months of life, and about 10 to 15 would be for reduced costs for palliative radiation. So again, the uh, American Cancer Society, there's almost 600,000 people are going to die from cancer. This is, uh, if you, um, although most of us as oncologists hate to admit this, um, but about one out of every three patients who gets diagnosed with cancer is ultimately going to die of cancer at some point in time. Um, our palliative care colleagues are, are always, uh, uh, at least at UVA, they're always uh, quick to kind of point out, you know, how come people don't realize that these patients are going to die and, and get more proactive and in, in, in advanced directives and, and in, uh, counseling of the patient. The government's recognized this recently, as recently passed codes uh, for you to be able to submit um, charges for actually end-of-life counseling. Um, so this is a big issue, and these end-of-life costs, you know, so one large report recently, you know, almost 70% of patients getting admitted in the last month of life. That, that's a huge amount of patients being admitted um, that, that could potentially be reduced with better outpatient management. So there was a paper that had come out just before this kind of RFP looking, this was the Tamel paper, looking at um, a group of patients with advanced lung cancer. Some of the patients were randomized to have uh, medical oncology and then palliative care intervene towards the end of life. And the other group um, was assigned to have oncologists and palliative care physicians right from diagnosis uh, with metastatic lung cancer. Uh, and the th they thought the patients were going to have a higher quality of life, um, but actually it turned out that patients had a survival advantage. And if you look at survival curves, say for ipilimumab, uh, other types of drugs that were coming out at this time, they, they were not dissimilar at all to this. So, so it turned out that, that some of the best blockbuster new cancer agents at about this time were, were as effective uh, uh, as actually taking very good care of patients and improving survival which was, I think, why this made it into the New England Journal of Medicine, this paper. And other uh, studies repeated this same work, that, in fact, including palliative care sooner can uh, improve a lot of endpoints, including survival. So, so many national organizations, NCCN, ASCO, ASTRO, they all advocate for us to have uh, palliative care interventions uh, with our patients um, who have advanced cancer when appropriate. But um, there, there, there are probably a shortage of palliative care physicians nationally. Large academic centers tend to have, have enough. Um, I know at the time of this grant, um, we had about a three-week wait period for palliative care to actually see a patient. Um, and so we were trying to address these issues. Um, so one of the things we started to think about when we formulated our proposal was, well, maybe if we had better informatics, maybe if we were tracking patients better, uh, which led to the kind of the thinking that maybe if we had some form of patient-reported outcomes, some type of database that was integrated into EPIC, which was our EMR, um, that we could share this information amongst uh, healthcare providers and, and track it longitudinally 
and set it up so that it might flag us or send an email to a nurse coordinator. Somebody was having escalating symptoms that we, we, we know historically lead to admission, like escalating pain syndromes. And then because I had started this project as well with the kind of the thought of improving the treatment of bone metastases, uh, we continued on uh, with an aim of uh, trying to uh, make it so that patients could come and get treated in a single day um, and have a full course of treatment. So turn a treatment course into a procedure, basically. So there are national guidelines um, for treating patients with single fractions of palliative radiation. Uh, th these are in the ASTRO evidence-based guidelines as well as ACR appropriateness criteria. This was the first choosing wisely group and it was the third choosing wisely um, uh, uh, area uh, which basically said don't use extended fractionation schemes or greater than 10 treatments for palliation of bone metastases. I say 30 gray and 10 fractions, 20 gray and 5 fractions, or one treatment with 8 gray, all have equivalent pain relief. A single treatment is more convenient and may be associated with slightly higher rate of retreatment. So it's about a 20% retreatment as opposed to, say, an 8% retreatment if you give a multi-fractionated, although it was never clear if that was because of worsening pain recurrence or because radiation oncologists were more comfortable retreating someone who's only had 8 gray before. And they said that strong consideration should be given for a single treatment for patients with limited prognosis and or transportation difficulties. So if you're in a rural cancer center, um, one of the things I did learn through this is how many patients actually aren't being treated um, because of transportation issues, social issues, and that if we could make this better for them, that, that, that they would have an opportunity to have some relief of pain. This was a uh, work done by Josh Beckelman, but looks at how many fractions people were getting. This, this came out about the same time as the Choosing Wisely guidelines. And you can see how many patients were even in freestanding centers, even in hospital-based centers, um, were getting even more than 20 fractions. And these were prostate cancer patients, a little bit earlier in the, in the time frame, but you know, these are, these are uh, very large numbers of fractions. So for those not familiar with radiation, in general, one fraction is given each day. So that means a patient has to come to the clinic each day for one of these treatments. And you can see how, how few patients were really getting single fraction treatments. So it was a big issue uh, nationally that there was this um, disconnect between guidelines and what actually was being practiced in many, many centers. So, so this would be a, a workflow uh, for a, a patient who, say, got 10 treatments. So they will come in and they would see maybe the day before, two days before, someone asks, can we have a consult? And the patient will come in and talk to the physician and we would do pre-authorization. Then we would schedule a CT simulation, which may be another day. Then we would do treatment planning. Usually that's done by someone called a dosimetrist or a medical physicist. Uh, and then the medical physicist do the quality assurance. Uh, and then after about a week, you, you, you might get started with an actual treatment. Now, not every course is like this, but this is not an uncommon course for many patients in our country. And then the patients would come and get treatment, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. 
So you can imagine what kind of barrier this would be if you if you live um, distant from a center. So so here's 50 miles from Charlottesville. I'm sure that many patients come from much farther than 50 miles to be treated here. Um, but this, from a state perspective, isn't very big. And if you have to come 12 times, that's 100 miles round trip. That's what this equates to. This is what you're asking somebody to do if you're asking them to come 12 times to get, you know, once for consultation, once for SIM, and for 10 treatments. Um, you're asking them to drive this far, maybe on a, maybe on a, on a, on a broken back. Um, and so we thought we could do better. When I trained, we had a great dinner last night, uh, and we talked a little bit about some of the older techniques and how we used to treat people. Um, but we used to just put people on the treatment machine and get a little x-ray and do a little calculation, and then we would treat them. And we frequently, we gave a lot of acre in one uh, when I was training, which um, wasn't that long ago. These, these, these look like very old-fashioned, simple techniques, and they are compared to what we're doing now. But it, well, there's been a lot of change quickly in our field. Um, and um, what we wanted to do was say, well, why can't, why, we, we've gotten, everything's gotten so complicated. We can't do something fairly simple and straightforward anymore. You know, how can we use all the advances in our field to bring back this patient-centric type of workflow where when the patient comes, they're going to come and, and have this planning session and the, and and, um, and 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 the, and the CT and, and get treated uh, in a single fraction. You know, how, how can we do that? How can we use all the advanced software that we have to, to to reinvent the wheel, as it were, so that we could do something simple again? So we thought about these problems and these issues of pal early palliative care benefiting patients. How how could we re-engineer radiation oncology as well to make it more patient-centric. Um, and we basically came up that we would, we would develop three clinical programs at UVA. Uh, one would be STATRAD, and this would be a same-day process for patients to come and have a CT simulation, planning, delivery, and treatment. And the treatment's actually very nice. I'll show you some, uh, some dosimetry, but we're doing basically stereotactic radiosurgery for bone. Um, and then CareTrack, which we is, uh, stands for Comprehensive Assessment, Rapid Evaluation, and Treatment. So this is a, a palliative care team. The NIDUS is the palliative care team, but it actually includes myself, uh, pain anesthesia, and, and a large group of people that are focused on patient-centric care. And then a program we called MyCourse, which was to integrate um, the NIH Promise based, uh, PROMISE uh, is a patient-reported outcomes uh, survey question, so there's a series of questions, uh, and this was embedded directly into EPIC so that we could track patients' pain, anxiety, depression, fatigue, and then this can be correlated with clinical outcomes. So we, we just had a paper accepted uh, showing that you can actually predict survival pretty well with this basically, with, with actually these basic uh, software. That, that's not new, that patient-reported outcomes can predict survival, but actually it, it's, you can see when the, the depression and the functional scores start to decline and a couple of these start to, to go in tandem, it's highly predictive of people not doing well. So you can actually use these patient-reported outcomes to direct patient-specific care, 
but then you can also use it more globally as kind of outcomes um, for your entire cancer center. Um, so, so, so that's been kind of neat to see that get developed. And this is kind of how you, the, the thinking is, is that you may be able to build a um, kind of a learning uh, a health, health environment uh, where we learn from our patients because we have good feedback from them. It's the patient's voice in the electronic medical record. So we, we, we said we're going to develop these three programs, and then we, we tried to think before we started writing this proposal, how, how is this all going to work? How is this, what's going to happen to a patient? So spend a little bit of time on this slide because I think it's important. So the idea is that patients initially get prevent, get, get diagnosed, say, with or, or, or develop advanced metastatic cancer and curable local cancer and, and uh, unresectable cancer. And they may derive benefit from chemotherapy for some period of time, and then switch to second line, third line. But over time, they're, uh, in general, they're going to become weaker. They're going to develop iatrogenic toxicities from the treatments that we inflict uh, and from tumor-related morbidity, and they're going to get sicker. And the benefit of the chemo is going to go down, uh, and the palliative care benefit is going to go up. Um, and um, we envision that patients may have a couple of palliative radiation treatments on the course of their treatment, the STAT-RAD circles. Uh, and then we would want to integrate palliative care. A lot of places, unfortunately, integrate palliative care very late in the, in the scheme of things, maybe, maybe just before hospice, and maybe at a last inpatient hospitalization. And at that point, it's really too late for the palliative care physicians to um, work their magic, as it were, to be able to um, build trust with the patient, to be able to meaningfully impact in their, in, in their quality of life, in their pain management, in, in their anxiety, depression, and, and all the other social areas that they get involved in. So we wanted them to kind of start getting involved when the chemo benefit starts to kind of go down, so earlier. And timing this isn't always easy, but um, kind, of, kind of the idea is where these, where these lines crisscross, you start having more of a handoff of care from the medical oncologist to the palliative care team or to this care track team. And that for the patient, this all seems seamless. They're not all of a sudden, someone's giving up on them and so forth, so that they, they have a real opportunity um, to, to, to work with a team. Um, and as, as, as they get sicker, they, they move more into the, the palliative care sphere. But it's allowed us, I think, to, to, to build these relationships that are, are, are integral to, to end-of-life cancer management, to honesty with patients, to being able to have um, patients uh, accept hospice, you know, maybe a little sooner than they would at other places and so forth. So I think that that's kind of the strategy that we we um, we went down, and um, this is the timeline implementation. So Stat StatRad and StatRT were programs. Stat StatRT gives two to five fractions. StatRad gives one fraction. Those should probably actually be be flipped. Um, and then we, we implemented this care track um, team, and I'll talk a little bit about that, this comprehensive assessment, rapid evaluation and treatment. Uh, we just modeled it after any other multidisciplinary cancer team. Um, for the palliative care folks, it was kind of interesting to, to actually meet once a week with a group of people, but we do it all the time for breast cancer, head and neck cancer. So from my perspective, it was just the same thing, just get together and talk about 
cases. In this case, we get together and talk about 10 or 12 of the worst actors, you know, people living in their cars, people with psychiatric illness, people who have no, no assets, people who have no family, um, people who have terrible clusters of symptoms, um, pain as well as GI and, and, and so forth. And we implemented the My Course um, about two years ago, and then we built these triggered alerts about uh, a year and a half ago. So that was kind of our timeline. So this is kind of uh, schematically what we kind of thought the palliative care, this comprehensive uh, uh, assessment, rapid evaluation, and treatment plan, uh, team would look like. So we meet every Friday morning. Uh, again, just like any other curative tumor board, palliative care runs the whole thing. They organize it. They present the cases. Anyone can present a case if they want to, but they bring most of them, but not all. Um, I think that this has really helped a lot of the, um, the, the healthcare team as well. You know, many of you, I'm sure, have gotten patients where you just don't know what to do and they're exasperating and you're spending half a day trying to manage X, Y, or Z for this one patient. And sometimes it's, it's nice actually to bring a patient like that to a group and say, you know, what should we do? Um, and so at this tumor board, we'll have pain anesthesia, myself, palliative care. There'll be um, frequently the GYN oncologists come. They're fairly highly symptomatic patients. And I treat the head and neck cancer patients. So I guess I represent that patient population, which is also a, a high symptom burden group. Um, we have the social workers, the dietitians, the chaplains, um, uh, some medical oncology uh, nurse coordinators, and the nurse coordinators for the for the palliative care team. So we'll meet, and we'll discuss cases. Um, we'll come up with a plan. The plan's typed into Epic, just like other tumor boards might be typed in. It's sent to the referral physician uh, to the PCP, um, so that everybody knows what the plan is, even if you can't attend. I think it would be a great format. Um, we haven't gotten to the point of having telemedicine come in, but I think um, you could certainly have outlying uh, hospitals or, or branches of your cancer center participate in a program like this, just like other tumor boards. So I think it, um, um, it, it it's a strategy that, that kind of works for us. And nobody wants another meeting, I can tell you that. I didn't either. But I can tell you, in the end, this actually saves you a lot of time. Because otherwise, these are the patients that the health system's pulling its hair out about, about what to do. So in the end, I think it, it actually does save your health system uh, a lot of time. So we, we call this, this, this um, promise-based PRO my course because we had Epic and they had my chart. So we just kind of uh, use their kind of uh, lingo. But it's a bunch of simple little questions that patients can fill out with a tablet. So we piloted that. Um, some patients have trouble with tablets. Older patients need a little help. Um, some patients or family members have to help them fill it out. Um, it can be filled out, out from their phone, uh, iPhone, or can be filled out from a desktop computer. Some patients have, have nurses um, um, help them um, when they initially get started, but then when they learn how to do it, they uh, can do, uh, do it themselves. Um, because it actually, it, uh, patients access this through their, through their MyChart. So it actually fulfills the criteria of meaningful use of communicating to patients as well. And then you basically get 
Um, these are just some of the, not all of the um, types of uh, domains that we ask about, but an example of some of the domains, so anxiety, depression, fatigue, pain, physical functioning. Uh, and you can see this, you can graph this over time. Uh, and then, I, like I said before, if you use it in aggregate, you can basically kind of predict uh, outcomes of patients based on declining status in, in these domains. It's set up to flag us so that it will have a pop-up window if somebody has, uh, uh, so we set thresholds for pain and anxiety um, and I think depression as well. Um, so a pop-up window will come up if they're actually there seeing, seeing you that day. Uh, and it'll also send an email to the palliative care nurse coordinator. Um, to, to, uh, so, that, so the idea here is that we're going to listen to patients and then, and then we're going to act on it. And so from a radiation perspective, we're going to act and get a, get, get a patient a treatment within a, a few days, a total you know, completed treatment course. Or we're going to get them over to pain anesthesia. Um, these types of things, so that so that when we know that patients are starting to go downhill, we're doing something about it. We're doing something quickly. This is kind of a a, a busy slide, but there, there there's more to the the MyCourse database. It's actually kind of a more comprehensive cancer database um, that pulls information from the tumor registry um, and financial data as well gets dumped into it so that we can actually uh, start to, uh, well, A, measure our outcomes because we have to measure the financial outcomes, but so that we also have demographic information about patients, tumor information about patients, uh, and so forth. Back to the to the radiation part, we we, um, we we started this new new workflow. We did what's called a fault mode effects analysis, and that's where you basically sit down and you say, well, what could possibly go wrong if we try and jam what we usually do over several days into four hours? Uh, and um, and and um, we had some new software that we were implementing for the quality assurance as well. So we sat down and we had a kind of our traditional workflow of how we treat patients who come in for radiation treatment. So they have a CT scan and we draw on the CT scan um, uh, and then um, do planning, phantom-based QA, and then treat the patient. And actually this, this analysis, we, we thought about things uh, pretty carefully and switched out a few things. So we were initially going to try and do everything on this, what's called a tomotherapy system that can get a CT scan, but it's not a very elegant CT scan. And we were initially going to try and treat patients on a single system and not move them at all. So they were going to come in, lay on the, uh, the tomotherapy couch, have an MVCT scan. We were going to take pre-contoured images um, CT scans that they had had recently and draw on that um, and then transfer the contours and then do the planning and then treat the patient. But we ultimately decided for a few reasons to, to not, not use a single system um, and to, this was kind of the ultimate, my, the ultimate goal for me would be to put someone on a, on a treatment machine and get a, get a cone beam CT or use it as a fluoroscopic simulator again and treat them quickly. But um, I don't know that we're there yet, so we just went back to really what's our kind of our traditional kind of way of doing things, getting a standard CT scan, uh, kilovoltage CT scan on our simulator. That also let the patient get up and move around some, and then they would just have to come back for the treatment. 
Um, so we call this workflow scan plan QA treat. And um, it required some software, which we call MC log QA, um, quality assurance procedure. So we calculate a patient's radiation treatment plan with commercially available software. And then we have a second um, computer algorithm, it's a Monte Carlo-based algorithm that basically verifies that those calculations were done properly. I, we've never not had them done properly, but quality assurance is about the one in 10,000. It's not about the, you know, one in one, one in 10. Um, and um, then we also um, came up with a way to use the CT detectors to measure the leaf opening time. So for those who aren't in radiation oncology, this is a little complicated, but these machines have metal blocks that move in and out. This is what allows us to treat people with what we call intensity modulated radiation therapy because these very small little metal leaves that, that can move block part of the radiation beam. And so that um, modulates the beam. Um, and so you can actually use the CT detectors from the TOMO system. It's all in line. So it's like a CT scanner. It's, it's in straight line to measure um, these multi-leaf collimators and verify that they're opening and closing properly. And of course, the machine has daily checks uh, uh, and um, output checks and so forth. And it continuously monitors the radiation output of the machine to within a few percent. So we felt pretty comfortable that, that this QA method, as opposed to what typically is done for a sophisticated treatment, which is to put a plastic, they would call them phantom, but it's a piece of plastic basically with a bunch of radiation monitors inside it and measure the dose. Um, we, we still do the phantom QA and we do it afterwards for these patients. We actually do these in the 3D mode of tomotherapy, so you don't actually have to even do the quality assurance per se on a phantom if you didn't want to um, from a technical billing standpoint. And the goal is to try and do all of this in about four hours, with the patient having about almost two hours where they can get up and, and go to lunch or see another physician. We're, we're kind of blessed to have, we have palliative care that works in our same space, so many of these patients will see palliative care in between while we're doing our thing, which works out really well. So we had a, our, our first phase one trial to get started with this. We didn't want to do a single fraction because we, we weren't, completely comfortable that we had all the bugs worked out. Um, so we were going to give two to five fractions, and these were going to be five to 10 gray units of radiation. The average was um, 21.6 in three fractions. The most common regimen we used was actually eight gray times three, which is a pretty high dose for palliation. Um, pain relief was maximal at three months. We had an 87% response rate, which is pretty good. Most, most palliative regimens you know, you're thinking more, more in the order of about 50-60% uh, response rate. Um, we have shown some improved quality of life. I can show you that. Uh, and no grade 3 or, or higher toxicities. We, we moved on to a, um, the StatRad protocol, which is a single fraction, where we, we, we draw the tumor in the bone, and then we put 0 to 5 millimeters around that, and we um, treat that with an increasing amount of radiation. So the first um, group was ACRE. So ACRE 1 is kind of the standard, national standard, international standard for single treatments. And then we've escalated to 
10 gray, and then to 12.5 gray, and then up to 15 gray. And we, we, for poor stratum patients who aren't going to live long, we didn't want to risk having more toxicity. If, if, if the, the goal of the dose escalation is to prevent having to retreat people, um, and, and hopefully to have more durable and faster pain relief. Um, but we didn't want to put people who were very ill Expose them to a, to the highest dose, so um, so they they stop at twelve point five gray. So we're still we have about thirty thirty five patients in, in this trial now. We're uh, target accrual is forty eight, so we're get we're getting there. This is kind of a, a, an example of we call this the dosimetry again for people who aren't radiation oncologists. This is just a simple rib net. This is easy to treat. The plan took us three or four minutes to to develop. You can see that in high dose, it's got 12.5 gray. So got a, got a high dose right around the tumor, and then the dose fell off uh, very nicely. Um, and um, really, this, this brown dose is 3.8 gray, which is a pretty low dose. So, and the spinal cord got about 4 gray in this. So you can get very nice dose distributions on, on this tomotherapy system for this. Um, and we're just starting, um, we're starting to write the protocol now to switch over to variant systems. So we have a Monte Carlo secondary dose count for that, and we can use the CT detectors. Jeff Siebers was involved in, a, uh, I think it was funded by ROI initially. It's called the Watchdog uh, program, which is actually to use the CT detectors to do QA even during treatment as well as before treatment. So we, we built all these programs, and we, and we started um, treating patients with StatRad and, and following them on my course and care tracks, and, and then we started looking at our outcomes. So this is um, uh, the control group was a group of patients that had never seen palliative care in the outpatient setting. Um, and they were, they, were, um, they were all single institution, um, both the care track in the control, and um, they, were, they were as matched uh, as we can get them. There's, the biggest difference was a slight difference in age. They were slightly older. But um, I think you can see we, we reduced hospitalizations um, pretty dramatically in the last 90 days of life. So this is about a 20% reduction, 25% reduction in hospitalizations in the last 90 days, uh, and really halved hospital admissions in the last month of life. Um, so I think that, you know, I think we were, I was surprised, actually, that, that the, the programs were that impactful. Um, uh, maybe the, the palliative care folks weren't, but, but I really was. Um, we really reduced ICU utilization as well, cut that uh, dramatically. And then um, this was one that um, really got the eye of our EVP was the patients dying in the hospital. Um, so we reduced hospitalization uh, mortality um, to less than 10% in this patient population. Um, and how does that happen? People go to hospice a little sooner. So um, our control group uh, was 13 days, and we almost doubled hospice with this program. Um, and the percent referred also went up. But I think that duration, I think, I think maybe a couple of weeks, uh, you can actually save a lot of money in the last few months of life, or in the last month of life, if people are in hospice rather than coming in for that last hospitalization that results in an ICU admission. 
So this is just kind of a, a summary, a global summary of the of these metrics. Um, so I don't know that there's much more to be added here, other than to look at the the costs. And so basically, we um, if you look at mean inpatient charges, and then mean or mean costs, and then mean total costs for the final 90 days of life, um, they were, were dramatically reduced. So about 25% reductions uh, in costs in the last 90 days of life, almost exclusively being um, for inpatient management of patients. With respect to the STAT-RT, we looked at pain relief. Again, I told you it was about 87%. We looked at how rapidly people actually get pain relief when you give them fairly high doses, uh, and it's pretty quick. So um, pain scores uh, come down dramatically, both the average and the median um, on this protocol. And quality of life uh, was improved. Um, um, for the fact uh, uh, bone pain inventory, um, it was significant for every, every time point except for the, the last uh, time point, which was at one year. Um, and fact, I think, was significant at three months. And we asked patients, are they satisfied with their treatment? And this basically um, correlates pretty well with their pain relief. Um, so most patients were very satisfied with these treatments. Um, I think we had about 30, 28 patients on the, this first STAT-RT protocol. Um, but most patients were completely or for the most part satisfied. And you can see that the not at all um, went away. There's a lot of talk about giving palliative radiation in hospice. One of the issues with that is it does take a little bit of time. And if you're not going to get someone to hospice for, um, until you know seven or eight days, treating with palliative radiation at that point probably isn't going to give them much benefit. So it does take time to see the, the maximal benefit of these treatments. And then would you choose this treatment again? And, uh, the vast majority of patients said they would. So we collected this data um, with the thoughts that, you know, with billing reform around the event horizon, that we should collect data based on what the value of a treatment is. So right now you get paid in radiation oncology for how many treatments you give and based also on the complexity of the type of treatments that you treat people with. Um, and uh, it may be at some point that you get paid based on what the value is to the patient, how much pain relief did they have, how durable was it, how, how easy was it for the patient to get that treatment, um, things like this. We also looked globally. Not all of these patients got single fractions or were on these STAT programs, but we looked at all patients receiving uh, radiation at UVA. Um, and and uh, for those that had died, which was a fair, fair percentage, maybe 80% 80, 80 of the cohort at the time of analysis, um, about 50 to 60% of them are only going to live six months. So if you start thinking about, you know, when, they, when the national guidelines start saying, think about single fractions for patients who are near the end of life. I don't know what the end of life means necessarily. I don't know that anybody does. But many of these patients aren't going to live very long, put it that way. And even if you had to retreat one or two of these patients or a handful, it probably, probably be, might be easier than getting 20 treatments like some centers were giving in the past. This is our single fraction. Um, even in the last month of life, we're not very good at, at, at giving all patients. Sometimes you just don't know 
when the end of life is prospectively. You never do, right? Um, so we are about 40%. And this kind of mirrors uh, Canadian centers and European centers. So it's actually doable to, to get to this level. And these are our kind of fractionation regimens. So we averaged, I think, somewhere about four fractions um, over this three-year period. So again, not everybody gets a single treatment. It's not appropriate for a lot of patients to get a single treatment because they have large volumes or a lot of normal tissue getting irradiated. Um, but many patients can be treated with five um, treatments. Um, and um, you, it's very feasible, I think, to get to some average number of treatments in the single digits, somewhere around four or five is probably not unreasonable. And again, this was looking at this bending of the cost curve. So we look at the, at the, at the total cost towards the end of life, and we start to see um, um, that there's significant cost savings um, that start about six months on this program. So the average person on the care, care track program was about four and a half to five months. Uh, and that then these, these cost savings are durable throughout the remainder of life um, and are about 25% of charges from, from 90 days to death. So I'll, I'll wrap it up and, and answer any questions. But the uh, things that we concluded from this uh, work is that um, palliative care and radiation oncology team care models uh, have great potential to transition patients from expensive chemotherapy-based palliation regimens to cost-effective uh, supportive care and ultimately to timely hospice referral. So we see this as a very nice bridge for patients. Um, PRO data um, can be collected in the EMR. Um, we've collected uh, two or th over 2,000, probably close to 2,500 surveys um, to date. Um, we've just expanded this program to all patients getting chemotherapy in addition to um, in addition to patients who are just being followed in that care track program. We have institutional funding to redo this care model in congestive heart failure patients. So it turns out that patients who have these LVADs and so forth um, put into their chest have palliative care physicians involved in their care. And so we built the same approach where we'll have patient surveys, and we have a, a weekly meeting where people get together with the sickest of these patients and decide, you know, what what's in these patients' best interest. So palliative care, we think of them in cancer centers kind of being um, working with us, but they actually work with lots of other subgroups, ALS, you know, other, other groups of patients as well. Uh, and same-day palliative radiation oncology workflows uh, can basically be re-engineered. Uh, and implemented to deliver highly conformal uh, dose treatments. This has a caveat. It's not, not appropriate for everyone. And um, there's workflow um, issues that have to be worked out um, for each center to do this, as well as um, currently it's somewhat cost prohibitive to do this um, because you, um, you can't charge even for the work you do because you can't charge for the CT scan for the simulation and the planning and delivery. So it's unrealistic to think that outside of uh, clinical trials and, and grants that this is going to be widely adopted unless there is some value-based uh, billing reform. And this is our team. And um, again, I think our, our, our hospital share this rural kind of connection. And so if any of these programs uh, if are interested to you, please please email me. 
I can't get you an answer. I can I can help get an answer for you, and and I'm happy to answer any questions now. Yeah. So the su supportive care tumor board. Um, did that take some time to, to kind of get some traction, it being kind of a, a culture shift and with a multidisciplinary group that can start to really change the treatment patterns uh, for the patient? Did it take some time to, to get that buy-in for the treatment modalities, number one? And number two, um, could you implement any components of the program um, on their own without the other components? In other words, a palliative care tumor board you're providing an alternative. You're providing the palliation treatment. And could you do those things separately? Yeah, th those are good questions. So um, the, the, the palliative care uh, supportive uh, tumor board built up over about a year from three or four people to about 12 to 15 now. Um, uh, we have a resident, uh, some of them are residents, about three or four residents from pain anesthesia, palliative care, as well as uh, grad on. But the rest are, are attendings. Um, so it, it did take a little bit of time and working out the bugs of who's going to present the patients and, and document the note. We don't do real long notes, but we do do a, a note saying what the, what the plan is. You know, who owns these patients at the end of life? That's the real question, right? I mean, the medical oncologist, uh, CMMI wants to have an oncology care model where they, they, they assume a gatekeeper role. I mean, right now it's not really clear who's in charge of what, and uh, at least at our center, in some in some cases, right? I mean, you got patients with brain mats, and they have their now they're seeing neuro-oncology on top of regular oncologists and neurosurgeons, and who's in charge of making sure that all this, you know, is coordinated and that we're all doing the right thing. So in, in some ways, it's nice having a note like this where, you know, a whole group of us met and we think this is what we ought to do, can help in that process. Um, certainly, you don't need to have any, any cancer center in the country knows what a multidisciplinary uh, weekly meeting is for care management. So anybody could do this. Um, and again, I think the, the initial thing, problem is people go, I don't want to go to another meeting, right, on my calendar. But in the end, I think it does, it does streamline care and it, it solves a lot of problems for the health system that uh, otherwise people spending a lot of time and effort trying to sort through. Um, I, I get a fair number of consults there and so does pain anesthesia, which is part of the reason I think the pain anesthesia comes. They put these pain pumps, I'm sure you guys do this too, and people and, you know, for people who are appropriate for that. Um, so, so, so people come because they get referrals, but they also come to do the right thing. Um, same day treatment um, or, or more, or, or shorter courses of treatment are, are possible uh, anywhere. And um, I think PRO systems are, are only a matter of time before all health systems have various levels of degree of PRO-based surveys of their patients. Um, and, and these new EPIC and these other, uh, I'm sure other EMRs, they make it pretty easy actually to embed these, these surveys uh, into them. So it comes, the patient gets it through the, through their my chart, but then the data gets outputted through the, um, what is it, the out, out, outflows or uh, wherever you chart the, the, the vitals and all of that, it comes right up there. I 
forget the name of it off the top of my head. So, so all these things are doable, I think. And I think that there'll be a time where patients come for palliation and radiation oncology, I hope, before I finish practicing, where they can just come and, and hopefully be treated, you know, even, even quicker than this and, and, and have a quick treatment. I mean, we have paradigms for that with uh, radiosurgery. Um, so most places that do intracranial radiosurgery do the planning, the simulation and planning and delivery in one day. So I think there's a model for kind of everything we're doing in most in most systems. And whether you put together some piece, piece of this or totally new programs that you come up with that fit your, your patient needs specifically, you know, I think we're all going to be kind of tasked with, with, with kind of cutting out some waste. Again, I think the CMMI approach, with at least the innovation center, was at least to ask the, the, the specialist to cut their own waste, um, which I think is going to be better for patient care in the end than, than across the board cuts. Yeah. One of the motivations for doing this work was to increase access. Have you been able to measure um, that for, for people who had to travel? Uh, are people taking up? the opportunity for palliative radiotherapy as a result of the challenge. So are we treating more patients with palliative radiation? I, I'd have to go back and look. I don't have the data before we started. My suspicion is yes. Um, that, um, that 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 uh, I could probably find that out, but my, my suspicion is we're probably treating maybe 15 or 20 percent more patients than we used to. Um, and partly because we're at the tumor board, and some, it's amazing how, you know, um, if, if uh, you know, other people may not think of that as an option, uh, especially if, 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 if the only option is 10 or more treatments, then they frequently don't even uh, offer to patients um, uh, as an option to go even talk to somebody about it. So I th my gut feeling is yes, but I don't have the hard numbers, um, but, I, but I think we are. Along those lines, are you finding that patients are referred to UVA for palliative care? I mean, are patients coming in because the, you know, the, the tumor board seems to be effective or, or at least is in So are we, are we gaining market share with the program per, per se? That's like market share, but are, are, are people finding their way to UVA oh, yeah. because of the way palliative care is working there? Um, I'd say that would be, I would say no, I think. but but. To, a caveat to that is we haven't really but just got these these results, so we're just now publishing the papers and so forth. I think that might be a little downstream. C could you put a 1-800 STATRAD sign on the highway? Uh, maybe. <laughs> and patients might call and come in for procedures. But I think at that point they're, they're kind of, um, um, you know, in their disease course. They're, they're frequently not shopping for, for systems based on palliation only. But we have had, you know, some patients whose family members heard about, you know, the fact that they could get a single fraction. So I, I shouldn't say none. So I've had a handful of patients who, you know, they said, oh, well, my, you know, my grandmother has bone mass. I said, well, you know, I'm happy to see her, you know, and, they, you know, they brought her in. So I guess I should, we, we probably do have a handful of cases that did. They did come specifically because they had already had treatment somewhere else, and it was 15 treatments, and, they, and we told them we would do it quickly for them. All right. Great. Thank you.